You are listening to the Central Church Podcast. To learn more about Central Church, including our gathering times, please visit gocentralchurch.org. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ethan Crowder. Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and meet me in Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 is where we will be together now. If you uh, receive our church emails, uh, then you will know that I'm not Brent Crow. Uh, Brent was supposed to be with us today, but he's feeling a little under the weather. Uh, so as my great-grandma used to say, here I are. All right. Uh, so uh, Hebrews chapter 1 is where uh, we are going to be uh, together this morning. Now, as you turn to Hebrews chapter 1, I want you to think about this word, uh, satisfaction. Uh, Satisfaction. Uh, Satisfaction, being satisfied, is a funny thing. Uh, We're we're never satisfied for long, are we? Uh, Whatever it is that we think we need or we think that we want, it it doesn't take us long to move past it, right? Uh, That house that you just have to have, eventually you've got to put a new roof on it, right? Uh, That car that you really want, eventually it's going to break down. Right, that uh, that money that you just thought, man, if I had that much money, then I'd be good. Eventually, it runs out, uh, and we could even think about more temporary things, right? Maybe you have been like me before, and you eat lunch on Thanksgiving Day, and you think I will never eat again, and then a few hours later, you think, well, maybe just a snack, right? <laughs> maybe uh, maybe just a little a little something else, right? Satisfaction is a funny thing. We're never really satisfied, but uh, our desire, our longing for satisfaction, it does teach us something, right? It teaches us this, that we were made to be satisfied. We were made to be satisfied, but we will never really, we will never truly be satisfied by the things that this world has to offer. Uh, See, we were made to be satisfied by something, and that something is our God. That's something that we were made to be satisfied by is the Lord Jesus Christ. So we were made to be satisfied by something far, far greater than anything this world can give us. And so this morning, we're going to take some time to, to think about this. And we're going to look at this, these first four verses of Hebrews. And we're going to see what the author of Hebrews has to say. We're going to zero in on this truth, that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Now, you might be saying, Ethan, well, what is Jesus better than? Here's the answer. Jesus is better than everything, right? Jesus is better than anything. So we could say Jesus is better than blank, and that sentence is still true, right? Jesus is better than that house. Jesus is better than that car. Jesus is better than that relationship. Jesus is better than that money. Jesus is better than whatever it is you want to fill that blank in with. In fact, this is what the entire letter of Hebrews is about. The entire book of Hebrews is all about uh, these three words, that Jesus is better. That's the theme of this book. Now, as we dig into these verses, let me set the context for you a little bit. Uh, Hebrews is really the only example of a full sermon that we have in the entire New Testament. Uh, Most scholars, they'll classify this letter, uh, when they talk about the genre of Hebrews, they'll talk about it as a word of exhortation. Uh, That what the author is doing, the author is writing to exhort, to encourage, to equip a group of Hebrews, a group of Jewish believers, uh, to live out their newfound faith. And so what he's going to do is he's going to take passages from the Old Testament, he's going to explain those passages, and then he's going to show how Jesus is better. Now, maybe you say, well, okay, Ethan, who is the author of Hebrews? Uh, Well, the answer ultimately is the Holy Spirit, 
right? Uh, that, that we, we don't know some, the, the kind of the older, uh, the older thought was that Paul wrote Hebrews, but when you read Hebrews and you read some of Paul's other writings, they, they don't quite mix, they, they don't quite sound the same. Uh, some people will say that it was Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts. Some will say Apollos. Uh, if you, if someone asks you who wrote Hebrews, let me tell you the right answer. The right answer is I don't know, right? We don't know, but what we do know is that the early church considered the book of Hebrews as completely authoritative. We know that God, in his providence, has guided that we would have this book for us today. And so what that means is that we're going to honor, we're going to respect God's word for what it is, and that's God's word. Uh, So let me invite you to stand as we read uh, these first four verses of the book of Hebrews, uh, starting in verse 1. The Spirit says to us this morning, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is God's word. You can be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for your goodness and for your guidance and for your providence. God, we pray that you would be with us now, that you would speak to us through your word, that you would make your will and your way and your wisdom real to us and clear to us. Father, we pray that you do great and wonderful things in our time together this morning. It's in the perfect and wonderful and powerful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. As we look at Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to see a few truths about this Jesus who is better than anything and everything. And the first truth we see is this, is that we know God through Jesus. We know God through Jesus. And now our God is a speaking God. This is what verse 1 says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke. And now the fact that God spoke really changes everything. Or that our God has revealed himself, and when God speaks, things happen, right? From the very opening verses of the Bible, we see that God speaks and things happen. In Genesis 1, God speaks and nothingness out of obedience to God's word turns into something, right? But when God speaks, things happen. And so here in the opening verses of the letter to Hebrews, he's unpacking this, that God speaks, Now, he says that he's spoken in various ways. And when he's talking about various ways, he's talking about these Old Testament genres, right? Remember, the writer to Hebrews, he's not writing with the full New Testament on his mind. He's writing with the Old Testament on his mind. And so he says he's written in various ways. So he's talking about these genres. He's written through prophecy and through poetry and through proverbs and through parables and through apocalyptic literature. He says that he spoke by the prophets. This is all of the Old Testament. See, what he's doing is he's setting the stage for what he is going to do. He's setting the stage for the rest of this letter. Essentially, what the author of Hebrews is saying is he's saying that God has spoken. He's spoken in the Old Testament through various ways. And all of the Old Testament is pointing us to this one key truth that the Messiah is going to come. And that Messiah is going to be better than anything and everything that came before. That that Messiah, that Jesus who has come now, he's better than everything. And so he begins verse 2 with 
the word but. Now that's an important word because something is changing. He says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. In these last days, he hasn't just spoken by prophets. He's spoken by a son. Now when you read that verse, you read that phrase, in these last days. What's the author talking about there, these last days? This was 2,000 years ago. We've had 2,000 years of last days. Well, these last days are the days in which God's saving promises have been fulfilled. See, in Jesus Christ, all of God's promises have been fulfilled. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that in Jesus Christ, all of God's promises are yes and amen. So everything that God needs to do to save you, to save me, it has been done, it has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now he says something important here that if we don't read carefully, we're going to miss. He says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now when he says son there, he's just not acknowledging, he's not just acknowledging that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He's not just acknowledging that Jesus is God's son, although he's acknowledging all of that. Remember, he's writing to a group of believers who are Hebrews. They're Jews. So when they hear this word, when they hear this book read, this letter preached, they're hearing it through the lens of the Old Testament. And so when the writer of Hebrews talks about God's son, they're coming to this with a much fuller picture of what does it mean to be the son. Now, we know the son is Jesus Christ. But that title, son, has huge implications for the audience. See, in the book of Exodus, Israel is called God's son. In 2 Samuel, in the Psalms, David is called God's son. And so what the author of Hebrews is doing here is he's showing us that Jesus is the true son of God, the true Israel, the true king from the line of David. The rest of the New Testament teaches us that Jesus is the unique eternal son of God. And so when the writer of Hebrews, when he says that that he's spoken by his son, that word has a whole range, has all kinds of implications for meaning, right? That this Jesus, he's not just another man. He's not just another person. He's not just some special guy that the Lord has chosen to use. No, Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God had promised in the Old Testament. And now he has done all kinds of wonderful, mighty works in his son now. See, Jesus is better than the prophets who came before him. He speaks with the authority that he shares with the Father. Now that God has spoken, it means several things for us. First, it means that God has spoken and when he speaks, he speaks authoritatively. See, when God speaks... We don't have the option to say, I don't know if I agree with that, right? Maybe for you parents, maybe when you speak to your kids, right? You don't tell your kids to do something and they have the opportunity, well, mommy, daddy, I'm not sure if I want to obey. See, when God speaks, he demands our obedience. See, when the king speaks, his people listen. When the king speaks, his people obey. This is why we take the preaching of God's word so serious here at Central. Because when we open God's word together, we are not opening USA Today. We're not opening the New York Times. We're not opening something that someone else has written. We're opening the word of God that he has preserved for us. See, God's word is true. I I believe this. I believe that God's word is true from Genesis to maps, 
right? And all of it is authoritative. All of it. It took you a minute, but you got it, right? That's all that matters. You got it, right? Uh, uh, God's word is true. All of it is authoritative. All of it means something for you and for me. Some of you, maybe you've started reading through the Bible this year. And you're doing, you're doing well through Genesis. And Exodus is a story. But you know what's coming, right? Leviticus is on its way. Leviticus is God's word. Leviticus is authoritative. Leviticus, in Leviticus, God has something for you. In Leviticus, God has something for me. So when God speaks, he speaks authoritatively, but also the fact that God speaks means this, that God has spoken sufficiently. He's spoken sufficiently. We don't need another word. We don't need the Bible plus something else. God's word is sufficient. The way the New Testament writers talk about it is that God's word has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. God's word is sufficient for everything that you need to know, not just on how to be a Christian, not just on the gospel, but also how to live a godly life. Everything that you need to live a life that honors Jesus is found in God's word and his Holy Spirit that is alive and active in you. See, we preach from God's word, we read God's word, we teach God's word because we believe that God's word is sufficient. God's word is powerful. God's word is effective. The prophet Isaiah tells us that God's word never returns void. It never returns empty. It always accomplishes what it sets out to do. So what that means is that maybe here in just a couple of weeks, you're going to get to Leviticus. And you're going to start reading Leviticus in your Bible reading plan. And you're going to start wondering, man, Lord, what are you saying to me? What are you doing? Now, maybe in Leviticus, he's teaching you, be holy because I'm holy, right? See, the law is teaching us about the nature and the character of God, that God is holy and ultimately that we are not, that we can't keep the law. Israel couldn't keep the law. We can't keep the law, but that in Christ, he has fulfilled the law. And now the Holy Spirit is alive in us to fuel our obedience. And so now we keep the law of Christ. We obey, not because we want forgiveness, but because we've already received forgiveness, See, there's something in Leviticus for you. Eventually, you're going to get to 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles, the book of begats. And the first nine chapters is so-and-so begat, so-and-so, and so-and-so begat, so-and-so, and so-and-so begat, so-and-so. Or you're going to get to numbers, and you're going to read all of these numbers. See, all of God's word has something for you. All of God's word is authoritative, and all of God's word is sufficient for you right where you are. See, it's not an accident that you're going to end up in Leviticus or numbers whenever you do. It's not an accident that you're going to end up in Romans or 1 Corinthians or Matthew or Mark or Obadiah or Zechariah. Or no, God has a reason to have you reading where you are when he does because his word is sufficient for exactly what you need, when you need it, and how you need it. Right? God has spoken, and so that changes everything for us. Our problem is not that God has spoken quietly. Our problem is that we ignore God's word. Think about when you drive. Maybe when you drive, maybe from time to time, you've been known to go past the speed limit, five or 10 or 20 miles an hour. I don't know what it is, right? Maybe you take the turn a little bit faster. See, the problem isn't that we can't read the sign. The problem is that we ignore the sign, 
right? Uh, the problem isn't that, that we can't read the speed limit sign, it's just that we ignore it. And what's gotten really bad is now when I don't know where I'm going, I pull up Google Maps on my phone, and now Google tells me what the speed limit is, right? Uh, and so I just tell Google, right, this is between me and the Lord, you leave me alone, right? Uh, right? Uh, not that I would speed, not, I don't speed, I promise, right? Um, yeah, I should, I should just, add, yeah, never, we'll move on. Uh, but the problem, the problem isn't the problem isn't that we don't, we don't see the signs. The problem isn't that we can't read the sign. The problem is that we ignore the sign. The problem isn't that we don't know where to go to hear from God. The problem isn't that we don't know how to read. The problem is that we ignore God's word. Now you say, Ethan, but the Bible is hard to read. And I'll give you that. The Bible can be hard to read. But you know what? That's the beauty of being a part of the local church because we believe that the Bible is read best. In fact, the way that the Bible was intended to be read wasn't just individually. The way the Bible was intended to be read was to be read corporately. Right, you remember in the, the, the early church, they, they didn't have a Bible like this where uh, they would say, okay, I'm gonna go do my quiet time and they would go sit down and they would read. No, in the early church, if they wanted to hear from God's word, they would gather around together. They would go to the synagogue to hear the reading of God's word. Or, or as the New Testament was written, they would go and they would hear God's word read. See, the Bible is made to be read in community. It was made to be read not just in preaching like this, but also in small groups so that as you get into your small groups, and maybe your small group leader, they've studied that week. They can tell you, hey, here's what this verse means. Or, or, or maybe you can ask that question, hey, I don't understand what's happening here. See, the, the question when you read the Bible is not, what does God's word mean to me? It's what does God's word mean? And that's where your small groups, that's where the pastors, we, we can come alongside, we can help you. Hey, here's what God's mean. God, God's word means. And it's not what it means to you, but what does it mean for you? What is it calling you to do? Right, what is it driving you to do? What next step is it calling you to take? And so I'll give you that the Bible can be hard to read. That's why the Lord has given us the church. It's also why he's given us his spirit, right? We could pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would illumine our hearts and our minds to, to see what does this passage mean and, and what is its significance for my life? See, Jesus is better. And one of the reasons Jesus is better is because through Jesus, we know God. Next, we see this, that we see God through Jesus. We see God through Jesus. Look at verse three. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I heard an apologist, a guy who defends the faith, I heard him say one time that if we could just see God, then believing would be easier. He said that people will say that to him. That, that if, if they could just see God, then believing would be easy. Now, none of us have laid our eyes on God. And none of us have beheld his glory. But this doesn't mean that he hasn't shown himself. See, I think that, that we want to believe, man, if I could just see God, then I would believe. But here's what would happen. Not long after we had laid our eyes on the Father, we would start explaining it away. I didn't really see what I thought. I saw. That didn't really mean what I thought it meant. But see, God has revealed himself, and he's revealed himself in Jesus. This is the point the author of Hebrews is making here, that Jesus Christ, the Son, is the radiance of God's glory. 
Now here in verse 3, he says he's the radiance of the glory of God. Now what does the radiance of the glory of God mean? We've got two options. One, it could mean reflection, that Jesus mirrors God's glory. So I don't know if you've ever shined a flashlight at a mirror and that light reflects, right? Maybe that's what the radiance of God's glory means. There's another option that Jesus, the Son of God, He manifests God's glory, that God's glory is inside of Him and He's manifesting it. Well, I think that it's both. One commentary says this, he says, reflection becomes radiance and radiance is what is reflected. The bottom line is that Jesus is glorious and he reveals God's glory to us. If you want to see God, if you want to know God, then look to Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, then read the Bible and look to Jesus. If you want to know how God acts, then read the Bible and look to Jesus, right? That that's the point that in Jesus Christ, God has shown himself. He's revealed himself. He has put flesh and bones on who God is and what he is like. Now, the author goes on to say here that he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. That exact imprint, it's the word that they would use in the ancient world to talk about the imprint that a coin would leave. So if you take a quarter and you press it into Play-Doh and then you pull it off, you see the exact imprint of that quarter. See, Jesus represents the nature and the character of God. The picture of Jesus in the Bible is a picture of God. So when we read about Jesus's love, we're seeing God's love. When we read about Jesus's compassion, we're seeing God's compassion. When we read about Jesus's tenderness, we're seeing God's tenderness. When we see that picture of Jesus's anger over the money changers in the temple, we're seeing a picture of God's anger over the Pharisees and religiosity and hypocrisy. See, Jesus is the reality of the one true God. He's the flesh and bones of the attributes that we see of the Father in Scripture. Uh, several years ago, I had to make several trips between Florida and Washington, D.C. And so what I was doing is I was driving up and down I-95. Uh, now, uh, not my favorite stretch of highway to be driving on. I don't know if you've ever driven that highway, but there's basically trees and potholes. There's, there's not a lot else. And, and the worst part of this drive, at least in my opinion, is I-95 that goes through South Carolina because all there is, there's trees and there's billboards. And if you know, uh, if you've driven that stretch of road, then you know that there are these billboards that are promoting south of the border, right? Uh, and you, you see these south of the border billboards and they just make me want to get north of the border a little bit faster. Uh, but on this trip up and down I-95, what I noticed wasn't the south of the border billboards. Instead, the billboard that stuck out was a McDonald's billboard that I saw several times. And so on this McDonald's billboard, it was the McDonald's red with the yellow words and there were two biscuits, on this billboard, and the billboard said, behold the biscuits, right? They, they wanted you to see the glory of the McDonald's biscuits, right? Behold the biscuits. Look at how glorious, look at how tasty, look at how wonderful these biscuits must be. See, when we see the picture of Jesus in the New Testament, what we should hear is behold your God. See, Jesus is that billboard pointing us to the Father, but Jesus is better than a billboard because Jesus is God. He, he's not like God. He, he's not similar to God. He is 
God. And so here's the question we need to ask ourselves this morning. Does your God look more like Jesus or more like you? Does the God that you worship, does he look more like the Jesus of Scripture or does the God that you worship look more like you? And see, we're all tempted to make our God look more like us than like God. We're all tempted to make a God that's okay with our small sins, but hates other people's sins. We're tempted to make a God that's okay with the way that we fall short, but, but he's angry with the way that others fall short. We're tempted to make a God that's okay with all of our imperfections and all of our problems and all of our issues, but that he's angry and he's mad and he's wrathful towards everyone else's issues. See, the default mode of the human heart is to be a Pharisee. If you were to go back to Luke 18, you, you would see this picture of a tax collector and a Pharisee. Jesus tells this story. He says the Pharisee prays in public and he, he beats his chest and he says, God, thank you that I'm not like that tax collector. And then he gives us a picture of the tax collector. And the tax collector raises his hands and he says, have mercy on me, O God. And then Jesus says, which one do you think went away justified? See, we're all tempted to be that Pharisee where God's okay with everything I do, but that person over there, they're the problem. Right, that person's the problem, or that person's the problem. But God's okay with me. See, is the God you're following say, behold yourself, or does he say, behold your God? Is the God that you're following, does, is he okay with your sins, but really angry at other people's sins? Or maybe the God that you're following, he never leads you to conviction over the way that you fall short? Well, if that's the God that you're following, then maybe, just maybe, you're not following the God of the Bible. If the God that you're following is always walking in step with your political party, then maybe you're not following the God of the Bible. If he's always following in step with your preference, then maybe you're not following the God of the Bible. See, if you can read the words of Jesus and never feel uncomfortable, then maybe you're not really reading the words of Jesus. Maybe you're not really understanding what Jesus is saying because our God is always confronting us. And that's a good thing because when he does, he conforms us into the perfect image of his son. He conforms us into the perfect image of Jesus. And here's the thing. Jesus looks a whole lot better than I do. Jesus looks a whole lot better than you do. Right? In eternity, when we make it to heaven, I'm not going to look like Ethan. I'm going to look like Jesus. And he's doing that right now. So we see, we know God through Jesus. We see God through Jesus. And finally, we see this, that we are saved by God through Jesus. Now this prologue to the book of Hebrews, it ends with a reminder of the gospel. Look at the end of verse three. He says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he's inherited is more excellent than theirs. At this point of the finality of Christ's payment for sin, it's going to be picked up several times through the rest of this letter. But we can't be reminded of it enough because we're prone to forget it. 
See, what's happening here in these first four verses is the writer of Hebrews, he's setting the stage. This is the prologue. He's kind of giving a, a hint. He's showing his hand on where he is going. See, Christ saves us, as he says here, by making purification for sins. See, purification happens through the death and the resurrection of Christ. His blood washes us white as snow. If we were to go to Hebrews chapter 9, we would see that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There is no remission of sins. We heard this last week. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. See, Christ has shed his blood so that we could have Forgiveness, he's made purification for our sins. See, purification, it frees us from the punishment that we deserve, but it also frees us from the effects of sin. This means that it frees us from guilt that our sin brings. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 2, we read this, that there's no longer any consciousness of sins. That guilt is not the disposition of a Christian. See, how do you know the difference between shame and between uh, conviction? See, Satan brings shame, the Spirit brings conviction. Satan accuses the brothers, the Spirit convicts the brothers. And the difference is subtle, but it's important. See, shame forgets the gospel. Conviction reminds us of the gospel. See, when the Spirit convicts us, the the Spirit's conviction is sweet. When the Spirit convicts us, He comes to us, He points out our sin, and He reminds us of the gospel. When Satan shames us, he comes to us, he points out our sin, and he says, how could God love you? Why would God have died for you? His death doesn't mean anything for you. You keep doing this and this and this and this. But the writer of Hebrews says that we've been purified. He's made purification. And how long does this purification last? It lasts forever. It's final, it's sufficient, it's complete, it's effectual. There's nothing that you or I can do to add to the purification that Jesus has already done. We're all tempted to think that I've got to do more, I've got to pray more, I've got to read my Bible more, I've got to do this more, I've got to do that more. But what the Bible says is that Jesus, he is the once and final sacrifice for your sins and my sins. And now because Jesus was sacrificed in our place, we don't have to keep re-sacrificing ourselves. We don't have to keep re-punishing ourselves because all of God's wrath for your sin and for my sin has been poured out on Jesus Christ. And so if we'll trust Jesus, then we have nothing left to fear. We have nothing left to do. The end of verse 3 says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty, the majesty on high. When he sat down, what we're seeing is that Christ's work is finished. Amen. It's done. There's nothing left to do. Jesus didn't sit down because he needed a break. Jesus sat down because it was done. On the cross, what does Jesus say? He says, it is finished. It's done. It's over. I've taken care of it all. I have done everything. He doesn't say that it's almost done. He doesn't say that we're getting there. He doesn't say that it's close to being done. We don't sing that Jesus paid most of it. What do we sing? We sing Jesus paid it all. We don't say Jesus paid some of it. Jesus did all of it. See, our God is not a halfway God. 
Our God isn't a God that leaves things halfway done. He's not like me with my honeydew list, right? I've got stuff, I've only lived in my house for like a year and a half, and I've got stuff that's been waiting on me for five years, it feels like, right? I need to do this, I need to do that. But that's not how our God is. He didn't go to the cross, take the punishment that we deserve, rise again three days later, and say, all right, I've done my part, now you go do yours. Because here's the thing, your part isn't good enough. When we try to add to the gospel, we mess the gospel up. When we try to add to the gospel, we, we drain the gospel of its power. Because when we try to add to the gospel, what we're saying is, God, you weren't strong enough to handle my sin. What we're saying is, Jesus, your blood wasn't good enough. Your death wasn't good enough. And it, the way the author of Hebrews would say it in Hebrews chapter 10 is that we count the blood of the covenant as something common. But Jesus' blood wasn't common. Jesus' blood was divine. Jesus' blood was powerful. Jesus' blood did exactly what he set out to do. Now, the end of verse 3, this is an allusion to Psalm 110. He sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In Psalm 110, if you were to look at Psalm 110, verse 1, you would read where David says and. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. This is a messianic psalm. It's symbolic of power, of protection, of triumph. So when the writer of Hebrews says this, he's saying that Jesus shares the same identity as God, that Jesus' work is done. He's triumphed over sin. He's triumphed over, over death. And he's done it in only the way that God could do. Now think about the Old Testament. We see what Israel was to be and what they were to do when they sinned. And over and over and over again, what do we see? We see that they fail, and then over and over and over again, they offer a sacrifice. But in Hebrews, we see that the one those sacrifices pointed to and promised has come, and this is Jesus. That Jesus is the fast, the last, and the final sacrifice. My oldest son, Haddon, when he was, when he was young, uh, he had a, a tender heart, and so if he got in trouble or if he had a, a fight with his sister, he would apologize over and over and over again. He would say, I'm sorry, Mommy. I'm sorry, Daddy. I'm sorry, Mommy. I'm sorry, Daddy. He he had to keep saying it until he felt it. He felt that one apology wasn't enough. See, you and I are often like that. We don't think that Jesus' sacrifice is enough. That there must be something more to do. But what we see is that the gospel of Christ has secured our salvation. Instead of focusing on ourselves, and even instead of focusing on our sin, we focus on Christ. Later on in Hebrews, we would read, fix your eyes on Jesus, the founder, the author, and the perfecter of our faith. The writer of Hebrews and the rest of the New Testament doesn't say, fix yourself, fix your eyes on yourself because you need to improve. No, he says, fix your eyes on Jesus. And the reason he says, fix your eyes on Jesus is because here's the truth, that we become what we behold. We become what we worship. And so when our eyes are focused on Jesus, we become more and more and more like Jesus. So we've got to fix our eyes on him. This is our motivation for holiness. Now in verse four, this Statement about angels seems to come out of nowhere. He says, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Why all of a sudden is he bringing angels into this? Well, remember, he's writing to this Old Testament, this Jewish audience. 
Angels were mediators of God's covenant with Moses. But the whole point that he's making in these four verses and in this letter is that Jesus has brought the new covenant, which is better than the old covenant. God promised Abraham and David that he would make their names great. And in Jesus, he has kept that promise. In Jesus, he has fulfilled the law. In Jesus, he has provided all that you and I need. Because here's the truth. Jesus is better. He's better than everything. He's better than anything you can do. He's better than anything I can do. He's better than anything we could want, anything that we could need. Jesus is better. And the reason Jesus is better is because Jesus reveals to us the most beautiful, the most wonderful, the most powerful, the most valuable thing in all of the universe. That's the high king of heaven, the creator God of the universe. What could be better than not only knowing that God, but being known by that God? Jesus makes that possible. See, the whole theme of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. I hope that you know that. I hope that you've settled in your heart that Jesus is better. He's better than whatever it is you're chasing. He's better than whatever it is you're looking for. Jesus is better. See, there are so many things that we think will satisfy our soul, but there's only one thing that really can, and that person is Jesus. See, if you want to know God, then look to Jesus. If you want to see God, then look to Jesus. I wonder if maybe today, maybe you don't even realize it, are you trusting something other than Jesus for the purification of your sins? Are you here this morning or are you watching online because you think that by tuning in or by coming in, that God will be pleased with you? Here's the truth. There's no amount of church attendance that can get you to heaven. Only Jesus can get you to heaven. So look to Jesus. Trust Jesus. Maybe you'd say, hey, Ethan, I'm a believer. I've trusted Jesus. I'm looking at Jesus, but I just feel stuck. I feel like I'm not growing. I I feel like I'm not pressing on. I I feel like I need something else. Here's what you need. You need, I need, we need to look to Jesus. See, he's better and he's promised that as we look to him, he will change us. See, here's a truth that we we need to sink into our lives as Central Church. It's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. See, we want to be a place where people can come who are broken and who are hurting and who maybe would even say, hey, I'm messed up. And the reason we want to be a place like that is because I can say, hey, I'm messed up. Hey, I'm broken. Hey, I'm hurting. Hey, I need help. And in God's word, what we have is we have a promise that Jesus comes near to those who are broken, right? Jesus comes near to those who need help, who need rescue. And that's exactly what he's done. And here's the thing. We all need to be rescued. Some of us need to be rescued from hell. Some of us are trying to run after something that we think will make us happy. Some of us think that if we just do enough good things, if we just try hard enough, if we just do this and that and this and that, then God will love us. Then God will accept us. Then God will forgive us. But what we see in the Bible is that the only way to get forgiveness from the Father isn't through your effort. It's not through what you can do, but it's through what Jesus has done. It's finished. And so maybe you need to to trust Jesus this morning. But maybe, maybe some of you, maybe you're believers and And maybe 
today, maybe this morning, maybe you're trusting, you're running after something that you think will satisfy your soul other than Jesus. And here is my promise. You can take this to the bank. It is 100% true, 100% of the time. What you think will satisfy you will never, ever satisfy you. There's always more money to be made. There's always more toys to get. There's always more things to need. There's always more of this or more of that. But when we come to Jesus, he doesn't give us some or most of himself. He gives us all of himself. And so if you want to experience real satisfaction, then instead of pursuing all of those other things, pursue Jesus. Run after Jesus. Look to Jesus because here's the truth. Jesus is better. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, thank you uh, that in Jesus Christ, we can know you. We can have a relationship with you. Father, I pray this morning that we would look to you knowing that Jesus is better. God, I pray that you would rescue us from trying to be satisfied by all of these other things, all of these other pursuits, that instead we would be satisfied by Jesus. God, I pray that you would make Jesus irresistibly beautiful to all of us. And God, I pray for those in here this morning who who need to know, who need to trust you. God, I pray that they would trust you even now. Father, for those who, who need to stop running after this thing and that thing, God, I pray that you would grab a hold of their hearts, you'd grab their attention, and they would settle in their hearts and in their minds that Jesus really is better. Father, I pray uh, for those who who need to follow you, for those maybe who need some help, who need someone to pray with them uh, so that they would turn their eyes back to Jesus. God, I pray uh, that you'd give us the opportunity to do that this morning. Or that you'd give us the opportunity to come alongside new believers and old believers, and yet to believers. So that we can help them see, so that you can press into their hearts that Jesus really is better. We pray this and we ask this in Jesus' name. Thank you again for listening to the Central Church Podcast. For more information on how to take your next step, visit us online at gocentralchurch.org.